So it would be great if you could have Isaiah chapter 40 there in front of you. We're going to pick up where we left off this morning. So this morning, if you weren't here, we were looking at Isaiah chapter 40, this uh, great chapter of the Old Testament. We looked at the opening 11 verses. Let me just recap some background. Isaiah is writing in Isaiah chapter 40 to a generation yet unborn. He's, he's writing to those who will find themselves in exile in Babylon. And as we've just been singing, even in Psalm 137, God's people who found themselves in exile were people who were depleted, deflated, discouraged, disorientated, and as we'll even see in our passage, disappointed with God. They thought that God had forgotten them, had abandoned them. And in this chapter, Isaiah has this message of comfort and hope and encouragement. God wants to breathe new life into his people. God, in his amazing providence, has a plan. He's a glorious future for his people. We, we saw in the first 11 verses this morning that God comes to his people. That's what he promises to do, to come to them, because he wants to be with them. He wants to save them. He wants to reveal himself to them. And he wanted his people to trust in him, because his word stands forever. Well, as we pick things up in verse 12 this evening, God's so conscious that his people living in exile, that one of the, the, the realities that can happen is that our problems grow big and our vision of God goes small. And God understood that what his people needed was to behold him afresh. And so as we walk through this chapter, that's all we're going to be doing is beholding God for who he is in all his glory and greatness. If you want a correct perspective in life, you need to have a fresh vision of who God is in all his glory and greatness. Now, this is honestly one of the most brilliant sections in the whole book of Isaiah. And as we come to it, I just want to say this by a disclaimer that We've all got finite minds here, right? So we'll never, ever be able to fully grasp nor fully comprehend how great and glorious our God is. Impossible. But as we come to this passage, God wants to stretch our vision of who he is so that we would understand something of his greatness. Now, the first section runs from verse 12 through 17. And what Isaiah does as he begins here is he uses a series of rhetorical questions in order to get God's ancient people and us this evening to think about what we know about who God is. When God asks these rhetorical questions, he's not asking them in a hostile manner. No, he's asking them in such a way that they're designed to renew God's people's faith in him. He appeals to what they know but perhaps have forgotten. So here, here's the first question. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Isaiah employs this other technique as he, as he employs this rhetorical question. He, um, he uses anthropomorphism. That is, he applies human terms to who God is. 
John Calvin says this is called divine accommodation. This is God speaking to us in baby speak so that you and I understand. Of course, we, we know that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. But he wants us to understand just how great and, and glorious he is. So he, here goes. Here, here's the first question, right? How much water do you think you could hold in the hollow of your hand? If you, if you were to, to go and, and fill a sink tonight, how much water could you get in there? Isaiah says here that God, he's measured the waters of this world. Every ocean can fit into the hollow of his hand. Uh, a person's span in their hand is, is, is from the tip of your thumb to the, the tip of your pinky. That's your thumb. That's your, your hand span. And, and in the ancient world, they, they used to measure certain things by the span of their hands. And here the picture is God marked off the heavens with a span of his hand. You know, the, the universe is so great, so, it's so vast that Scientists today are still discovering parts of it that we don't even know about. With the span of his hand, God measured off the universe. When was the last time you used a set of scales? Maybe you were baking something, you were weighing sugar, flour. I don't imagine that it amounted to much, but here Isaiah says God can weigh the, the dust of the earth. Think of all of the dust in the world. God can weigh in his hand. Added to that, he can weigh the mountains in a scales and the hills in a balance. That's the Alps, the Rockies, the Andes. You mention it, God weighs them all. And here, Isaiah, as he's, he's inviting us to behold our God, he wants us to see the power and the strength of who our God is. See, when you understand how powerful and how strong God is, you can appreciate that that means that God can do anything whatsoever in your circumstances. Nothing too hard for him. Well, well Isaiah then goes on uh, speaking on God's behalf in verse 13 and 8, and he, and he changes the focus from looking at God's power and strength to looking at God's infinite wisdom and intelligence. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Here's what Isaiah is saying. When God created this world, he did not set up a creation committee. He did not hire consultants or mentors or advisors. You know, in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, um, Depending on what your nation you're from, you often had this vision that, that the world was created by either your local deity, your nation was created by your local deity, or the whole world was created by a pantheon of gods. And here's the biblical testimony. God created this world, but he did it with no one's help. No one told him what to do. No, no one did he need to consult, seek advice. And not only is God infinitely intelligent and glorious, but God is infinitely wise. He, he didn't need to be taught. See, God, as we're taught here, is he knew right and wrong. God, there's nothing, nothing 
he needed to be taught, so infinite is our God's wisdom and understanding. And again, this is the reason why Isaiah's highlighting this is because you need to know that the God of infinite wisdom and the God of infinite understanding, if he's so infinite and understands all things and he understands your life better than you understand it, behold the wisdom of your God. Now in the next three verses, the rhetorical questions give way to uh, some assertions regarding the greatness of God in comparison with the organized might of the nations. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. You you ever been watering the garden? You, You fill up the watering can and as you're walking towards the garden... I've not done this, but I'm sure some of you have. And some water spills out a few drops. Do you go back and fill it back up? No, a few drops, meaningless. You ever, you know, been in Tesco or Asda and you're you're weighing your bananas or you're weighing your lemons or your onions and and, and you, you look at the scales and you think, I better clear it up just to make sure there's no dust in it so it doesn't add to the cost. Of course you've not. God says the nations, they're just like a drop. They're so insignificant. They're just like dust and scales. All the nations of the earth, all the huge military powers of of Babylon, of Egypt, they're nothing in comparison to God. They're a drop in a bucket compared to his glory and greatness. The the reference in in the next verse there, behold, he takes up coastlines like fine dust. Perhaps in in the people of God's mind, that the coastlines may have referred to people who were were living in the the West, the the Greek-speaking world of the day. And and many of them had heard the rumors. They were powerful and they were growing in resources. And God says, they're not people you need to fear. They would just run through my fingers like dust. When he mentions Lebanon in verse 16, Lebanon was renowned throughout all the world for its renowned forests being full and lush and then having all these wild animals. And and God says, if we had all the trees of Lebanon and you tried to burn them and burnt altars, they would not be worthy of my greatness. And if you took all the beasts of the field and you tried to offer them as sacrifices, they would not be, they would never meet the greatness and the glory of who I am, they would all prove insufficient. Such is the glory and the greatness of God in comparison to everything else. I notice that in verse 17 he says, let me me put it clearly, he uses this hyperbolic language, but it's in many ways so true. All nations are nothing. In comparison to God, there is an infinite chasm between the creator and the created. They are nothing. They are empty. God here is trying to stretch our vision, show us how great and and, and glorious he is. Do you see it? Now, as we get to verse 18, we, we come to a new section. And Isaiah presents a consequence of this vision that he's just presented of God in all his greatness. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness 
compare with him? And the answer to that question is no one, nothing. But you know what happens to people in times of hardship and struggle? We, we know all this glorious truth, how, how strong and how powerful he is, how wise and how intelligent he is. We know how incomparable he is, but you know what the people of God did? They turned to idols. Look at verse 19. They wanted a God that they could see, hold, bow down to. I know it's ridiculous, but this is the sinful heart of humanity. Verse 19, an idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will rot. He seeks out a skill, skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. It's one of the tragedies, right? When God's people sometimes find them suffering, instead of turning to the God who's so glorious and who's so great, they turn to idols and, and here he says they, they, they go to a craftsman who will make them a, an idol from, from gold and from silver and if they don't have enough money they'll go, they'll go to a craftsman and say I need an idol made of wood but wood that won't rot and, and, and I need you to make the idol in such a way that when I put him up in my home he'll not fall down he'll not topple and, and, and in many ways here God through Isaiah is, is just speaking of the complete ridiculous nature that God's people would forsake him and put their trust in idols. Now, you and I might be tempted to laugh at them and scoff at them, but here's the question. Do you ever do this? You know when the going gets tough? You know when times get hard? Is it in God you put your trust? What is it that your mind turns to when you're all alone with your own thoughts? What is it that captures your heart's affection and attention? Now, our idols, of course, might not be like the ancient Israelites, you know, physical idols of gold and silver and wood. But how many of us idolize people or pleasure or ambition or material things? How many of us will so easily substitute something else in the place of God so that we can find meaning, safety, security, purpose? Calvin said, our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. And all of it's folly. The whole point is no one can compare to God, and yet the problem with the people of God is that they turn to idolatry. Now, now we move from this section. So, so, so God is presented to us as glorious in his power, his strength, his wisdom, is incomparable. No one can he be compared to, and yet the sad predicament of God's people is that they were turning to idols. Well, now... God, through Isaiah, uses another series of rhetorical questions to drive home the significance of the statement he's just been making. Look at what he says in verse 21. He wants the people to grasp the fundamentals of the faith. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What? 
God is the creator. So in verse 22, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. That is this image of God enthroned as the the glorious king of all creation. Do you not understand that from the very beginning God created this world? Now, of course God's people did understand that, but here's the real problem. They failed to apply the significance of this truth to their lives. They knew how powerful and how glorious and how great God was. They knew that he was the creator, but they didn't entrust their lives to him. It's one of the tragedies. God over all, but not God over my life. The next thing that Isaiah wants to make clear to his people, God through Isaiah wants to make clear is that God's not just the one who created this world, but God's the one who's intimately involved in this world. Look at verse 23. Who brings princes to nothing, makes rulers of the earth as emptiness, scarcely planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows in them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God's saying to them, you've got to understand, right? You might be in Babylon, you might fear Babylon, but, but here's the thing. I can blow them away, and they're nothing. Here today, gone tomorrow. Behold your God. Now, it's interesting. All the way through, it's been God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. But when you get to verse 25, it's the voice of God we hear. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. God wants us to hear his voice. Church, there is no one. No one that we can compare God with. And notice that he describes himself there, he's, he's described there as the Holy One. Actually, Isaiah's favorite term, remembered because of his vision in the temple back in Isaiah chapter 6. But this is who God is. He is the Holy One. He's the set-apart one. He is the unique one. We have got to understand that our God is glorious. He is holy. He is great. There is no one like him. Now, Here's a spiritual discipline that might help you and me as we seek to impress this truth upon our minds and our hearts. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Do you ever, and and, and this is a perfect time to do it, on a winter's night, walk out and, and look up to the sky Look at the survey the stars. If if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see His handiwork, well, it's there. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim day after day His handiwork. Verse 26 goes on. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is so strong in power, not one is missing. Now, now this is incredible. God's saying, I want you to see that I'm the one who created all these, all these stars. That I created the world. But I want you to know that there's not one star I've ever overlooked. All of them have their perfect place in the heavens. 
And if you let that truth sink into your mind, if, if God gives so much care and attention to that which he's created in the heavens, then how much care and attention do you think he gives to you and me who are made in his image? Who are made to live in relationship with himself? Now, this is where this all comes to head. The greatest tragedy of God's ancient people, and it is true of us today, is we say we believe in God. And yet, we don't live like we believe in God. We say that God is the creator of the world. We we know that truth, don't we? And yet we think he's some way, somehow, unable to meet our personal needs. We say that he knows all things, he, he's infinitely wise and understands all things, but somehow we give off the, th- the fact that he doesn't understand our life system, our crises. And, and this tragedy is put on full display in verse 27. God's, through Isaiah, has given them this message, and, and, and here... He comes with these probing questions. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Now, the way that this is written in the original is that they keep on saying this. They're continually complaining. You know, Jacob, Israel, the the great forefather. Remember why his name changed from Jacob to Israel? Because he was wrestling with God, striving with God. And here's God's people when they're striving with God and their their complaint before the throne is, my way is hidden from you, God. You don't see what's going on in my life. You don't care about what's going on in my life. We're here in exile. And it feels like you do nothing. You're doing nothing about it. And Isaiah, God, through his prophet Isaiah, is bringing this message. No, 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 guys, don't you get it? If you believe this truth about God in all his greatness and power and wisdom and strength, it makes a difference. So look at verse 28. God has to say it again. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. So God here reminds them, I'm a God of no beginning and I'm a God without end. I'm not constrained by the pressures and the limitations of life in time. Scripture says that to God, a thousand years are like a day and a day is like a thousand years. God's people were in exile for 70 years and they're complaining day after day, day after day. But haven't, don't they know God is the eternal God. God's never in a hurry, never in a rush. He's he's not bound by time. He works out his purposes perfectly. Isaiah said, don't you know, guys, I've just been saying it to you, how he's measured the earth in the whole of his hands. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. As I said, the, the, the ancient Near Eastern nations, they all thought, you know, there's a God, the gods of Babylon, the gods of Assyria, the gods of Egypt. Isaiah, speaking God's behalf, says, no, 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 no. God is the God of the creator of the ends of the earth. That is, he's the God of every nation. He created this universe. He made them meticulously, precisely, every mountain, every valley, every field. 
The stars in the sky, God made it. And if God's so precise in all that he made, how precise do you think God is with your life and my life? So quit complaining, quit saying that God doesn't care, God disregarded your way. Remember, the whole purpose of this chapter is that God's people might have comfort and encouragement, and so it is this glorious, glorious end. You want to know who God is? You want to behold your God? Well, listen, he does not faint or grow weary. God never gets tired. He never gets tired, never sleeps, never slumbers. His understanding, unsearchable. Or as Paul would say in in, in Romans, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. We as God's people, we can never plumb the depths of God's understanding. God understands the situation of your life tonight, today, this week, this year. He knows everything about it. And he's working out his inscrutable ways. We must let this vision of God, who he is, reinterpret our life circumstances. Never let your feelings define who God is. You know, when you're downcast and you're self-pitying, you start to think that God is distant and detached and removed. Now let your vision of who God is as revealed in the scripture define and shape and inform your thoughts and your feelings. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And you just love this, right? God with all the resources that he used to make the universe, he delights to use his limitless resources to give his people strength. When you're physically and mentally exhausted, God loves to strengthen you, renew you, breathe new life into you. There's this contrast in verse 30, even youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall. Man at its prime. If lived, if man lived in its prime, young men seeking to live without dependence upon God, they'll grow weary. They'll suffer. But those who are weak, those who live in dependence upon God, their Creator, those who live in relationship, they'll refine what they need. Now, now here is the most incredible thing. What is God's ways or way? of strengthening and renewing his people. You see it? Verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Now this transformation takes place, weak, weary, to strong and filled through waiting. Now, let's not misunderstand this. This does not mean that you passively sit by and do nothing. It actually, this waiting is, is speaking about active trust. God, no matter what I'm going through, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to depend upon you. I'm going to rely upon you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to pray to you. And do and, and, you know what's incredible about this is that when you rely upon God, when you pray, upon, pray to God, when you praise God, that's his means of 
transforming you, filling you, renewing you. It's his divine design. That word renew means exchange. We substitute our weakness as we wait upon the Lord for his strength. You'll know that the word wait can also be translated hope. As we hope in the Lord, as we know who he is, as we know what he's done, as we're studying this morning, even in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, taking our judgment, we can have full confidence in who God is. You know, one of the, 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 the huge um, difficulties of, of the, the Christian life is, is God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. And you and I find it easier to walk by sight and not by faith. So we look at our problems and we don't trust in our God. We want to run ahead. We look to idols for that which we should be looking and trusting in God alone for. Now, now, now one of the reasons it makes us such a glorious word of comfort and encouragement is how it ends. These people were living in exile. And you know what they desperately longed for? Was to go back home. And if you remember, do you remember how when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, how God described the exodus? He would take them. His people, he'd carry them on his wings like an eagle. Well, look at what it says. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. In the most intense trial, difficulty, exile, these people want to fly, these people want to run, these people want to walk. God says, as we wait upon him, God ultimately promises us that, and on it, it's coming, it's going to happen. But not in the here and now, it's going to happen in the sense of, in all of our trials, God just leads us out of them. Ultimately, God is going to come and take us as his people, and he's going to lead us gloriously into the new creation. He's going to take us home. And we're going to be with him. We're never going to forget who he is. We're going to trust him. But he calls us in the here and now to do that. To wait upon him. To hope in him. Let's pray. God, we want to learn how to submit to your wisdom. We want to learn how to look to you, to trust in you. We want to go into this year facing every day with glad expectations that you're the God who is at work, even whether we are conscious of it in our own lives, but you're at work in this world. You're at, you are at work in our own lives. We, we don't often see it. We pray, oh God, that you would teach us how to depend and how to trust in you. God, have mercy upon us when we turn to idols, when we look for pleasure, for security, for meaning, for happiness, apart from you. God, we pray that we would learn how to behold you, that you would re-evangelize our hearts, that we might discover your greatness and your glory afresh. God, we, we do long for that day when we will be lifted from this world and carried into the new creation by you. God, we long for that day when we will dwell in your presence and there will be nothing, nothing whatsoever that will ever interrupt 
distract our communion and our fellowship with you. And so, God, we pray that even as we wait on you in the here and now, as we trust in who you are and what you've done, you might renew our strength to live for you, especially as we go forward in this new year. And we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.